Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. And I'm Clay, communications specialist. In this episode, we're going to recap some of our favorite moments of the podcast during the fall semester of 2017. We had a lot of great guests this semester. I remember talking to Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, which was, as an interviewer, such a great honor. And we spoke to him right after the racial incident at Charlottesville. First of all, I want y'all to have some voter registration booths at this election. If we're talking about citizenship, I mean, that's fundamental. Because it started out where women and white men that didn't have land and black people they had no right to vote. So if it's election on citizenship, if they're 18, let's make sure all of them are signed up. Secondly, I'm calling on people right now, and I will make a call that night to join the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. We need as many people who will engage and will stand together to nonviolently challenge um, these issues of racism, poverty, and ecological devastation, the war economy, and our moral narrative as well. And not just to save a party, but to save this nation and to fight to guarantee that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people is not ultimately destroyed, is not ultimately undermined by xenophobia, by fascism, and also by apathy. Coretta Scott King said something that that I've held now for several years deep in my spirit. Her husband had been murdered, assassinated, and someone asked her about violence. And, And I think about this often when we see persons march, like when there is a um, death by an unarmed black man or unarmed black woman or unarmed black child by an armed police officer and people march, and we should. But then I asked the question, did you know 250,000 people die a year from poverty? Do you know that for every 500,000 people deny Medicaid expansion, 2,800 people die according to a Harvard study? So in North Carolina, for instance, over the last four years that we've denied Medicaid expansion, probably somewhere in the neighborhood, well over uh, 10, 12,000, 13,000 people have died, not because God called them home, not because it was their time, but because of violent public policy. And that kind of looking at issues always takes me back to Coretta Scott King's statement when she was asked about violence in the aftermath of her husband's murder. And she said, you know, that's the kind of violence. She said, but poverty is violence. Denying a child education is violence. Denying health care is violence. Denying wages to workers is violence and union rights. Denying people their culture is violence. And then she said, even an apathetic spirit that refuses to be engaged is a sinister form of violence. I want to call the students on that campus away from a life of violence because even apathy is a life of violence and call them to active, nonviolent engagement. I would also say that he was really generous with his time, which was pretty amazing, and that's why we, that ended up being one of our longer episodes. We just asked for 20 minutes of his time. He gave us almost an hour. Yeah, that was great, too, because not everybody could make it to the wheel lecture, 
which he, he delivered on October 11th later on in the semester. And he really touched on a lot of the themes that he talked about in the lecture. He basically started a new tradition for the Wheel Lecture on American Citizenship, which he asked a very important question, why not register people to vote at the event, right. which, we st- which we did. Um, yeah. <laughs> and when he said it during the interview, I remember thinking, of course, why wouldn't we do that? <laughs> right, right. It was just like, <laughs> it was so simple. But no one had thought about it yes, <laughs> until then. Exactly. So I think we will be doing that every other year when the wheel lecture occurs. We also had the opportunity to interview authors, historian, music producer, T-Bone Burnett. Right. Um, but one of my favorite interviews was the interview with Sam Amago, who is the Romance Studies chair and professor. Yeah, and he primarily studies Spanish literature and film of the 20th century and 21st century. In particular, a very favorite film director of mine, whose name I struggle with. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Pedro. And, <laughs> go ahead and struggle now. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. It's uh, Pedro Almodovar. Almodovar. It's Almodovar. That, yeah, the accents on that second O. <laughs> Almodovar. Yes. Yes, and I loved that Professor Imago brings the film studies to learning uh, Hispanic culture, language. Uh, I find it to be one of the best ways to learn language is through media. I really liked, appreciated his take on this because Almodovar, for a lot of Spanish scholars in film studies, he's one of the more famous directors to kind of delve into. But he took, has an interesting take on this by viewing the aesthetics of garbage within, within these films. Watching Mujeres al Borde de un Ataque de Nervios for the 40th time, I noticed in the mise-en-scene this repeated insistence on detritus, cast-offs, trash, garbage. And there are these characters who are constantly trying to get rid of things that either remind them of the past or that compromise them in some way in the present. And so I started to think about, you know, what, why is this movie that is, uh, you know, on the surface, it's a relatively lighthearted, you know, romantic comedy. Um, it's, uh, it's sexy, it's, you know, light, it's buoyant, but then at the same time you have this sort of um, background of of trash and garbage and you know getting rid of stuff and and there's also some violence attached to to these these things that these characters are trying to get rid of mm-hmm. and so like all good projects it began talking to colleagues in my department about you know what do we do with trash and and I was talking to Juan Carlos Gonzalez Espitia who was mm-hmm. your dissertation director and yeah. he's super into you know the archive and sort of digging in and finding the stuff that's been forgotten, you know, yeah. al fondo in the in the deep, you know, recesses of of the library or, you know, things that have been forgotten by the culture. And he's he's said, you know, why don't you look into, you know, what's going on in Spain at this time? What's happening with trash? And so I started going into the the digital archive um of elpais.com and ABC and some other um, you know national publications that were publishing um, you know newspapers and magazines at the time, mm-hmm. and 
you know, on the one hand, yes, Madrid was rapidly modernizing and people were, there was a lot of construction and rehabilitation of the city centers. And so that explains some of the construction debris that you see in the background. Yeah. But then also there were these sort of skirmishes as uh, between local, regional, and national authorities about infrastructure and consolidating waste collection and disposal. So, you know, in the, in the 80s, if you read the newspapers, there's actually a lot of material in there about unregulated dumps throughout the city mm-hmm. and, and, you know, where are we going to put the, the detritus? And, of course, people don't want it in their communities. So then you, you get into questions of, of class and, and the economics of waste in, in the country. So, you know, the working class neighborhoods in the South become the recipients of a lot of this consolidation. Right. So, you you know, you watch a, a, a film that is relatively light, but then you start digging and, and you come up, come up with a lot of really interesting uh, material. It's like doing a cultural archaeology of the Spanish past and present through garbage as it appears sometimes accidentally, but sometimes purposefully in the background of these films. We spoke to him before he delivered a talk at the Back Bar as part of our uh, Humanities Happy Hour event series um, that we started in partnership with the Carolina Public Humanities Program. They've been doing this, but it's a way for the fellows to uh, engage the public with their research and, um, and to talk about it. And that, that particular talk did really, really well. There were a lot of people there, um, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I heard from him that he really enjoyed doing it, too, because it kind of takes him outside of your normal class lecture or academic talk. And just that different venue, I think, is refreshing, not only for the audience, but for the, the presenter as well. And those will continue throughout the spring, correct? Yes. On the IAH website, iah.unc.edu, we have a list of dates. The themes haven't been picked out yet only because we, as well as the Carolina Public Humanities, want to have uh, themes that are very current. So um, definitely check us out there. That's great. Your interview with Kathleen Duvall and, at the time, UNC senior Elizabeth Carbone, they talked about their Honors Carolina IAH collaboration, which they were able to do through a grant that we offer every semester. And particularly the process of writing uh, Kathleen Duvall's second book and how instrumental uh, having a student researcher work on this book with her. And we really got to hear that in this podcast. Some of the things you found out about London, this is exactly what I hoped you would do. You found out all these things about London that I don't know. It turns out I actually know Cahokia's history much better than I know London's history, although lots of people, of course, know London's history. And you were able to read this these histories of London with such an eye toward comparisons because you've learned all this about Cahokia. So which is these dugout canoes. I'm so glad you picked up on that because that was probably my favorite little bit of this um, is, I guess, for background, the uh, um, archaeologists who were digging up bits of the Port of London found this dugout canoe. Um, They said it must be prehistoric because only prehistoric people use canoes, dugout canoes. Um, And then when they actually 
did the carbon dating, it was medieval, and they think that there were probably lots of dugout canoes because they're easy to make and they float on rivers well and they can carry a good amount of cargo, but not a sort of 21st century boat amount of cargo, sort of what you would be able to produce. Mm And, um, you know, when they find dugout canoes in, in native archaeology, they assume, yeah, of course, because mm-hmm. they were primitive. Of, of right. course, it, it's from, you know, the 1200s or the 1300s. Because right. right. they were uh, still they were, primitive, supposedly. Right, yeah. right, but they're really, really reluctant to believe yeah. that about European yeah. societies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was really interesting. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's going to yeah. make a beautiful paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even a picture. Um, but yeah, just that they... Things people are doing in medieval London are not that different from what mm-hmm. people are doing in medieval Cahokia. They're mm. they're producing goods. They're delivering them in dugout canoes. <laughs> they're um, and the the religious things you found out too. The um, the I like your idea of corn and fish both being you know clearly very important foods, but also having a religious component in the different places. Thanks. And it just it goes perfectly towards the book purpose of, of making the world of ancient and medieval North America less alien to us. And part of that is making medieval Europe a little more alien yeah. to us, reminding present-day readers that we are very different from yeah. Europeans in the medieval period. Yeah, I thought it was cool that not only did she have her do some of the primary research that kind of helped her uh, finish that chapter sooner than she expected it to, but to also read and give comments on on what she had on other chapters and give her feedback. And I appreciate how Professor Duvall was willing to empower a student in that way to kind of help her with with her book, which which was a great learning experience for for the student. We offer these grants uh, two thousand um, dollars to students to work with. Uh, faculty fellows on their research projects. And we offer this every semester, fall and spring. The next one will be announced in the spring. And a lot of times I think students, when they hear research, they're thinking of STEM research. And this is a great opportunity, a venue for them to explore, well, what does it mean to to participate and do humanistic research? What does that look like exactly? Because sometimes you hear, you have these professors, but you, and this is one of the things with the podcast as well, is we learn kind of what, what does a professor do? What are they doing there? And, I, and one of the interviews that we had over the summer, which I really enjoyed, was Jennifer Gates Foster, who is in the classics department, but she's a trained archaeologist. And so we were able to ask her when she goes on an archaeological dig over the summer, what does that actually look like? So when you're there at these digs or these excavation sites, what does the you're directing these? Is that correct? I'm a co- the co-director. Co-director. Of the site, so that's as right. a co-director, what does maybe a typical day in these sites? What does that look like when you're over there? Yeah. So our team, um, we have a, you know we have a routine that we sort of stick to day in and day out on these projects because we're we working with students. We have UNC students with us. Uh, we also have students from our other um, consortium uh, team members, so from from other institutions. And we we have a, a regimented day that makes it easy for the students to manage the the demands on their time and also makes us more efficient. And that's an early morning. So what we do is we get up around four thirty. Um, we're in the bus uh, on the where the the vans that we use 
to get out to the site. Uh, we're in those by a little bit after 5 a.m. And so we're on site as the sun is rising. It's, it's hot in Israel. In right, the yeah. summer, it's very warm. So we try to optimize our time in the field, and we're working as soon as we can. So at first light, we're out there uncovering the site, getting our tools organized. So we work in the mornings uh, intensively before the sun is, is too hot, take a couple of breaks through the course of the morning for food and coffee and tea and things like that. And then uh, we're out of the field by around 1 in the afternoon. And we return to the kibbutz where we live, take a break for about a half an hour, uh, eat some lunch, and then spend the rest the rest of the day really from around 2, 2.30 until 5, 5.30 processing our material that we've excavated that day. We bring all of the pottery and other artifacts that we've recovered from our trenches back to the kibbutz for cleaning, um, documentation, and analysis. And that takes up a good part of our, our time. So speaking of research, I also enjoyed your interview with Enrique Neblet, who is a professor in the psychology and neuroscience department, about his research on the effects of racism on African-American youth. For a very long time, been interested in understanding how do race-related experiences, so things like racial discrimination, impact mental and physical health in African-American youth. So that's kind of question one, how does racism um, and the stress associated with it impact uh, health outcomes? And then the second question I'm interested in is how do we protect against the effect of racism? Uh, how can we find factors that protect youth from experiencing you know, depressive symptoms, anxiety, some of those things? And I've taken a particular interest in racial and cultural factors that offer protection or resilience. So things like racial identity, um, what is a youth's sense of self or connectedness to their racial group. I've also been interested in racial socialization. So that's how do parents talk to their kids about race? What are the messages they give their kids about being African-American? Uh, and then the third factor is just broad cultural um, African culture. How do things like being a collective culture or being a spiritual culture kind of lead to um, protection against racism-related experiences? You just mentioned your uh, uh, a leave for sabbatical. What are you going to focus on during that during that time? So my plan during my leave, <laughs> I have a lot of plans actually, yeah. <laughs> but the main thing right now is preparing grants for funding. Uh, so I'm going to be submitting a number of writing projects uh, to the National Institutes of Health and possibly some other foundations that are going to look at the relationship between uh, racism and health outcomes and also uh, physical health over time and the way that racial identity um, can act as a protective factor for black kids um, and maybe Latino youth as well mm -hmm. uh, and looking at that over time. So I've done a couple of studies. In fact, the last couple of years, we've been looking at this in uh, young adults and just here at UNC. And I'm interested in expanding that work to look a little bit earlier on in development. So early high school, the transition into young adulthood, into college years, and also extending it to think about other groups besides African-Americans as well. One thing I would like to do is interview him again to get kind of more in-depth on 
One thing he also mentioned was strategies to intervene on, on these psychological effects that they've, they've observed. So it goes beyond just noting the phenomena, but to, to work towards uh, a remedy or, a, or, as he mentioned, intervention. Uh, one of the great things about interviewing someone again is you can delve into not just, well, what do you do in general? And then we always ask them about their favorite books and, or books that change their life. Mm-hmm. But we got the opportunity to also interview Mai Nguyen, who we had interviewed earlier when she became the director of our new faculty program. You were able to interview her, and we, focus, we were able to focus on a current project that she was working on, which was this performance in the shadow of Ferguson. Yes, and she she was also a recipient of our Arts and Social Justice Grant, which funded this this project, uh, a performance outlining the history of Ferguson, Missouri, from 100 years, really, starting with the Plessy versus Ferguson, to the 2014 fatal shooting of Michael Brown. And I thought that especially since Mai Nguyen is uh, a professor in the city and regional planning department. It's a very interesting intersection of uh, qualitative social science with the performing arts. This is my first artistic endeavor, and I'm a social scientist who studies urban planning, so this is way outside of my comfort zone. But I've created a multimedia performance that brings in artists. I collaborate with a spoken word artist and actors and a filmmaker to produce the film behind the multimedia. And so it's a collaboration that hopefully will take what we do as planners and educate a wider audience. What was the inspiration for this There are a number of events that I think shaped my thinking about this. First was I was a MIRAP advisor. Um, Are you familiar with MIRAP? No. MIRAP is the more undergraduate research apprenticeship program and for two summers. And during those two summers, there were so many incidences of police brutality uh, against African Americans. And my students were primarily African-American. And I could see so much of their pain and, and anxiety over these incidences. And I started to think about, is this about police brutality or is it something deeper? Um, and, and I started to think about the role that housing and urban policy have shaped how that shaped the landscape for a hundred years that allows police brutality against blacks to happen. And and that's the story I wanted to tell was the structural inequality and structural racism that leads us to modern day Ferguson. And ask the question, why Ferguson? Why why did we have the uprisings after Ferguson? There were so many incidences and have been since then of young black unarmed males being shot by police, but why Ferguson? Why was that different? Why was Mike Brown different? And I wanted to explore that as a research question. It starts at Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court ruling that separate is equal, and it tells a story over 100 years uh, about St. Louis and its suburbs that separate has never been equal, and how that has shaped the African-American experience today. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows, 
and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.